How we doing? Front row is here. How about, how about the back row? We got any back row people? Y'all doing okay in the back over there? Amen, amen. Hey, my name is Russ. Uh, I am originally from Moonville, South Carolina, which y'all know where that's at, clearly, by the looks on your face. It's, it's right by Possum Kingdom. Does that help? Possum Kingdom is where the band Need to Breathe is from. Any of you heard of Need to Breathe? Now we're making up some ground. Now we're making up some ground. Uh, I uh, went to Wilmot High School. My parents were both educators. They were principals. My dad was at Bryson Elementary. Uh, last service, I was talking to a guy. He said, what's your last name? And I said, Chambers. And he said, oh, your dad was my principal back in the day when they spanked. And he spanked me. And I'm like, well, nice to meet you, sir. Uh, <laughs> So, any of y'all live or go to school back when you could get a whooping at school? Anybody? Amen. Praise God. Y'all are stronger for it. Pro yeah. Uh, so, my parents are principals. They still live down there. Me and my wife, I met her. She was Miss Hilltopper back in the day. Praise God. She's proof that the Lord exists, that she would marry a guy like me. For some of y'all that are struggling, if you're a single man, you're like, man, is the way of God, is being a godly man the right way for God to bring a godly woman in your life? The answer, if you look at me, is absolutely. Uh, here's a picture of my family. We've been married going on, me and my wife, 14 years. In 2009, we moved all the way across the country, and we went to Cali. And we planted a church, and God showed up. We took eight people with us. We knew no one in that city. And God, over a, a decade plus, grew that church into a church of around 1,200 people at its peak, reaching and seeing around 100 people professing faith in Jesus and being baptized annually. God is at work outside the Bible Belt, inside the Bible Belt, in places you wouldn't imagine. God is doing great and big things. And after 12-plus uh, years, of serving in California, my wife and I felt the Lord tell us, go home. And so we recently just moved back into the upstate of South Carolina with our beautiful three kids. This is my oldest daughter, Macy. Uh, she is an artist. She is a filler. Uh, a couple of months ago, she came into our bedroom, and she looked at me and said, Daddy, we need to talk. And when you got a nine-year-old and your kid says, we need to talk, it freaks you out. And I said, yes, ma'am, because she doesn't ever want to talk to me. And I said, what, what do we need to talk about? She said, we'll talk in the morning. I said, no, ma'am. This will not rest. We will not sleep on this. And she said, Daddy, I think I realize I need Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. And so I went and grabbed Morgan, and I said, tell your mama. And she looked at her mama, and she said, I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And we asked her some questions, and we walked through some scripture. And my beautiful nine-year-old daughter gave her life to Jesus this summer. We baptized her. We celebrated and jumped up and down. Amen. God's at work in her, and we're just so excited about what God's doing. This is my son, Lucas. He is awesome. He is seven years old. He, has, uh, he doesn't look this cute anymore. This is when his mother had control of his hairstyle. Uh, he now has been given control of the way his hair looks. It's the first responsibility we want him to steward, and he chose a mullet. <laughs> Y'all can pray for us. There's levels of mullet. There's the Walmart mullet. Anybody seen a Walmart mullet? The female mullet. Anybody seen the female mullet? It's a rare sight. There's the Euro mullet that looks like you're from Australia or New Zealand. He ain't got none of that. He's got the I've been in a holler mullet. A holler is a mountain uh, valley in the middle of nowhere, and it looks like he sat in that valley in the middle of that mountain for about a year and came out and went. So y'all pray for his mother because she's concerned. She's, we don't know what's growing in it. We don't know what's living in it. We just know that he needs Jesus and, and a, some shampoo. And then this is, this is our youngest. Her name is Nora. And uh, don't let her fool you. She is a terrorist. She is, 
She, she bullies the other two around. The other day, my son uh, nudged his cousin too hard, and she picked up one of his Pokemon cards and said, don't do it again. And I'm, I'm dead serious, not making this up. And Lucas said, you won't do it. And she went, say I won't. So y'all, y'all pray because I don't sleep good at night because she may come in and kill me in the middle of my sleep. So that's my family. We are humbled to be here with you, excited to be here with you. Some of you right now are grossed out because I'm barefoot. Let me really briefly touch on that, and I'll move off of it. Uh, I, back in the day, I went to Anderson University, walked on as a college basketball player. I was hoping to be the great white hype. I ended up just being an average bench player at a D2 school. But... um, I went to that school and they made you go to chapel. Anyone ever been in, like you had a mama that made you go to church? Then you had a school that made you go to church? It's like, it's like everywhere you go, they're like, all right, we're glad that you are here, now go to church. Like that, that was my life growing up. I had a grandma that made me go to church. My first concert wasn't a cool band. I didn't go see Cool in the Gang. I didn't go and see like, you know, Marshall Tucker Band. I went to a Gaither vocal band homecoming, <laughs> praise God. There's a woman named Vestal Goodman, and she shook that hanky, and I felt the spirit blowing off of it every time she shook it. Uh, that, that was me growing up, always in church, and I was bitter about it. I went to college to meet girls and to find a really high-paying job so that I could impress girls, plural. And uh, Jesus trapped me with basketball, and I ended up in a chapel service, and I gave my life to Jesus my freshman year there, and he changed everything about me. And the reason I preach barefoot is that before I met Jesus, public speaking was my greatest fear in life. Any of y'all out there with me? I was one of you. Like, like you, do you want to do, you, wanna, uh, you know, do some, the most embarrassing thing you could ever do in front of a crowd or have to stand up for 30 minutes and preach in front of a crowd? Which one are you choosing? I'm going embarrassment. I'll fall down stairs. I'll do anything, but don't ask me to preach. And so I gave my life to Jesus, thought that'd be it. And one night felt God say, you're mine, and I'm going to use you. And I'm calling you into the ministry. And I was reading straight through the Bible, not knowing that God was trapping me. Any of y'all ever been in that situation? Like God's like booby trapping you. You don't even know it. Like you walk into something, you thought it was going to be just a, I can play it cool, I can be laid back, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up and you're like, oh no, <laughs> just get through it, just get through it. And, and that began to happen to me that night. Uh, as this preacher was preaching, and I went back to my dorm room feeling a call to go into ministry, reading straight through the Bible, and I was at the part of the Bible in Exodus where Moses finds a burning bush. And his excuse for saying no was that he wasn't of eloquent speech. And I felt the Lord say to me, boy, if you'll just follow the path of obedience, I'll, I'll come up where you're not sufficient. I'll fill in where you don't have enough, and I'll do through you what you can't do through yourself. And God has been faithful to that promise. I've seen several thousands of people make professions of faith all over this country now. Been a part of seeing God break out real revivals. We went eight months just a couple of years ago of baptizing and seeing people meet Jesus every single week. And I just want to tell you, I want to encourage you, this isn't a, hey, yay, Russ. If you will follow the path of obedience, he is a good shepherd. He loves you. He is able. He is powerful. He's not disappointed in you. He has a plan for your life, and I believe he desires to do something that you couldn't do with your life if you would put it into his hands. Amen? So I preach barefoot because it's my way of reminding me that I didn't choose this. You chose this. You better show up or we're in trouble. (laughs) Amen? If you have your Bibles, open up to the 23rd Psalm. I was praying about what to share with you. Uh, I know that this is a unique season in the life of this church. And I want to applaud you for uh, really getting shoulder to shoulder, side by side with the people of this church, if you call this church your home in this season. 
for refusing to walk away from the fact that God's got great plans for this place, that he's not done here, that he's just beginning, and, and, and choosing to uh, love the Lord and love the people around you in this season. And as I was praying, I don't want to yell at you over the next several weeks, and I don't believe this is a moment in the history of this church where we just need to charge a hill. There's a time to, to go after a hill hard. There's also a time, though, to just remember the presence and the goodness of God. And I think that's what I've been tasked with giving to you, is I came to remind you that he's still the good shepherd. And over the next several weeks, I want to break down a familiar psalm that many of you have heard. It's the 23rd Psalm, and you probably read it in some of the lowest points in life. That's how it's been used by many leaders in our country. Abraham Lincoln read this psalm to the country uh, during the middle of the Civil War. George Bush read it at ground zero right after 9-11 to give comfort and encouragement, to remind that in spite of current pain and current suffering, that there still is a God that supersedes all of this, that cares, that's near, that loves, that's not forsaken us, but he's still at work. And even though we may not understand how he could take this mess and bring something good out of it, he's the God that brings the beauty out of the ashes, the God that raises the dead back to life, the God that restores hope whenever it's been lost. And whenever everyone's, well, everyone else walks away in bitterness, he's the God that is faithful to endure us to the other side of every valley that we walk. And so I feel like my task is to break this psalm down as an encouragement and a reminder to you. And so I want to set the psalm up today. We're going to read it in its entirety. And I want to challenge you to do something with me over the next several weeks. I don't want to break the psalm down and have you just simply walk out of here and forget about it. But I want you to put it to memory. The Word of God is a weapon. It's not a weapon to abuse and hurt people, but it's a weapon to discern truth from lies. And in, in our lives and in our thoughts, there's always going to be times where we have lies that come in. And we have to discern, is this God, is this true, or is it not? And for some of you, you've got a lot of lies and stuff that you've begun to believe. Uh, the, the lie that God is finished with you, the lie that God doesn't care about you, the, God, the lie that God cares about others in this room, but he doesn't care for you, or the lie that God cares about the people that are here, but he doesn't care about those of you that are watching online. The truth is... Uh, we need the truth to discern it. That's why King David said he's hidden his word in his heart that he might not sin against God. And I want you to hide this word in your heart and memorize it and put it to memory so that it can be something that you have whenever the liar comes to deceive you and make you think something that's not the truth about the character and the work of God in your life. Are you tracking with me? So we're going to put this to memory over the next several weeks. We'll read it together. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Uh, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I was going from memory. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. <laughs> you prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? This is an incredible psalm. I want to teach you a few things about its context that will enrich your experience in it. The first thing I want you to see about Psalm 23 is this. Number one, uh, David is writing this psalm later in his life. So many of us think, well, it's Psalm 23, so it's an earlier psalm. Well, the psalms aren't necessarily in order of when they were written. This psalm actually is believed by most theologians to have been written at the end of King David's life, not at the beginning. 
Warren Wiersbe, who's a theologian, says this about the psalm. Many of us see David, a young shepherd boy, lying on his back in the pasture and pondering the things of God when he probably wrote this psalm late in his life. Possibly during the rebellion of his son, Absalom. That happened in 2 Samuel chapter 13 to 19. In it, David deals with some of the difficult things he experienced during his long walk with the Lord. While people of all ages love and quote this psalm, its message is for mature Christians who have fought battles and carried burdens. This is David after going through some stuff. Thinking on how God got him through that stuff that he didn't think he would go through. This is David after the giant. This is David after his failure in adultery with Bathsheba. This is David after he murdered. This is David after Saul has been removed and he's seen God elevate him to his throne. This is after David has been through the turmoil of his family dividing. This is after David has seen his kingdom broken down and divided. And I don't know about you. But it helps me in my times of uncertainty. Whenever I'm going through the I never thoughts of life, like I never thought I'd be here. I never thought that this is what our family would look like. I never thought that these would be the challenges that we would be facing. I never thought that this was the person that I would become. I never thought that I would be wrestling with that issue. I never thought that my kid would be going through that. I never thought that that would be my family. Whatever the details of the I never thought were, which 2020 gave us a lot, amen? Because if you saw 2020 coming and you didn't tell us, that was mean. That was mean. I didn't see 2020 coming. It, it wrecked us in so many ways as a family. I mean, it, it literally broke down everything that was familiar and comfortable in my own life. And in the midst of it, I was looking around going, man, I, I never thought this is what we would be. I mean, like I haven't showered in seven months and... Uh, we, we've been hanging out in this house and, and like there's these lockdowns and, and like what, what, what is happening? I never thought that this would be what we would be doing here. We watch the news about stuff like this that happens there, but not here. And have you ever had an I never thought moment in your life recently? And in the middle of that, whenever you're in those moments of life, people will come and give you advice. It happens in the book of Job. Not every bit of advice is good advice. And there are people that you call friend before you walked into the storm that you're in that aren't a real good friend once you hit that storm. We learned that straight out of the book of Job, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that in one season of life when everything's good, when the uh, pocketbook's full, when, when life is abundant, they're there and they're encouraging. And then all of a sudden something happens to you and they are the biggest discouragement of your life and they're not echoing the voice of God anymore. They're not helping you anymore in that season. And this is... Something that I think is important contextually because David is writing this after he's been through stuff. And for some reason, when someone comes to me that's been through what I've been through and they speak, I'm more prone to listen than someone who's just armchair quarterback and on the sideline outside of the pain, outside of the suffering, never dealt with a rebellious kid, never dealt with being ruined financially, never dealt with the uncertainty of a broken marriage and what the future will be like. For some reason, when I know you've been through it, I want to pay attention. David's been through it. We should pay attention. That's what the 23rd Psalm sets up contextually, number one. Number two, this psalm is a praise and not a lament. So don't eeyore your way through it. Many of us, because of that one line out of that Coolio song, as I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain. That's Weird Al Yankovic. We don't have time for that. Any, anyway. Come along. It's ADD. My brain goes there. Um, because of that one line in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we only hear this at funerals. And it is meant to give comfort and grief. But it's a praise 
And it's meant to incite praise in us in the sufficiency of the leadership of the shepherd. I mean, King David in this is reciting this psalm not to get him through a tough season per se, but to remind him that in spite of the season, God is worthy of praise. Now, I'm worried that this context point actually points to something ugly in all of us. And maybe it's not your tendency, but it's mine. I have a tendency when everything breaks down to go, I need you, God, I need you. Every Okay, and then all of a sudden, things get better, and I'm like, I can live without you right now. I don't really need you. And I get into this guise of self-sufficiency. And in America, and in your context, I mean, self-sufficiency is a real enemy to this thing called Christianity that you have. Because none of you are actually self-sufficient. You just have seasons of deceptiveness where you think, I'm good. You put on your church clothes, your church face, your church attitude. You walk in. You act like you're not as desperately in need of God as you were when the marriage was broke down, when your bank account was negative, when you didn't have enough to get through, when the future was uncertain. So you walk in with a posture that says, I sort of need you. I need a little bit of you, but I'm not desperately dependent on you. You see, at the end of the day, we're more like the uh, woman who's pushing through the crowd to get to Jesus, more like the little man that climbs up in the tree because he's got to see Jesus day in and day out than the self-sufficient Pharisee that's sitting at the table thinking that he's an equal with Jesus. You've got to check your posture, folks, because it, it could be possible in a season of good that you could cease from praising God that you could actually walk away and dishonor God in a greater way in your life and for many of us you're in a season where things are good where where this pandemic hasn't been bad you're an introvert you're just waiting on someone to say work in your pajamas and stay home and don't have to deal with people it's perfect for you but don't let the seasons of success rob you of the same desperate posture that we are to have before God Yeah, I want to live in an independent country, but I want to live dependent upon Jesus. And I have a king that rules and reigns over my life before the president or before any elected official in my life. So since I live as a kingdom citizen first, I live as a citizen that's dependent upon him. And let me just be very clear with you. God didn't ask you to come and pray a prayer so that you could go and handle it. God asked you to come and surrender your life to his leadership and lordship. And it's only whenever you lay it in his hands that he is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask, imagine, or perceive. So don't let your self-sufficiency in a good season rob you from living a God-dependent life. Amen? I'll encourage myself. Can you preach for us? You can keep going. Okay. Sorry. I heard y'all talk to your preacher. I, I'm, I'm just wondering. Maybe it's just a, a, a moment of waking up. Are y'all still bitter about Clemson? Is that what it is? I'll, I'll move on and stop meddling. The Gamecock fans are used to it because that's every week of their life. The third point, before I get to meddling, the third point I want you to see is this. This psalm is a reflection of God's faithful leadership in the past to encourage him in the present. This psalm is a reflection of God's faithful leadership in the past to encourage him in the present. How many of you have struggled? You don't have to raise your hand because it's church, and I know we don't like to be honest. But um, how many of you have struggled with the idea of faith in a season of uncertainty. I'm not talking about you struggled with faith when you had it figured out, which actually wasn't a season of faith. That was certainty. If it's already figured out, you don't need faith. It's when the outcome is in jeopardy, when you don't know how you're going to actually overcome whatever it is that you're facing. That's when faith is required. We have been given faith because we're not always going to have the answer before we take the first step of obedience. And the only way that you honor God is by stepping in obedience on what you know about God, even when you don't know how God's going to show up and overcome what you're facing. Are you tracking with me? 
Now, how many of you have wondered how a murderer, adulterer, guy like David could be known biblically as a man after God's own heart? Anybody ever thought, that seems ethically off? <laughs> right? Yeah, like two people. Okay, amen. Lord's moving. <laughs> I've thought that a lot. I, this is the way I think when I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, man after God's own heart. And he saw her bathing on the roof. What is going on? Like, <laughs> all right. Why? Why? I believe it's because he was able to, to discipline himself in moments of doubt and failure to remember the character and faithfulness of God. Let me show you in another instance. In 1 Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, we get this story where things are going really bad. Like, like he's at Biden and Trump level approval ratings, okay? Like it's not good. I offended both parties, so don't be mad at me, all right? It's not good. He's gone out with his army, and while he went to attack a, another country, that country sent their army around, and they took all the women and all the children all the stuff. So David and his army come back, and everybody's gone. And he's like, it's too early for the rapture to have happened. And this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. I'm not talking recreational California stuff. I'm talking rocks to the face. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll stop. Because all the people were bitter in soul. Bitter people hurt people. Bitter people hurt people. That's what happens. They're bitter. They want to hurt someone. A lot of you went through 2020 looking for someone to punch. You just couldn't find them. You're angry. Your life's been interrupted. You didn't ask for this kind of grief. You don't know who to trust or who to hold accountable. You're bitter. You want to hurt someone. That's where they're at. And in the midst of this, as they're all bitter and angry and sulking in it, at all their sons and daughters have been taken away, David, it says, strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How many of you have ever taken some time to think about how did he strengthen himself? What does that mean? He strengthened himself. He sing a song. He started dancing. He got Pentecostal. He shook a tambourine. Wave a flag. What did he do? How did he encourage himself? What I think David was doing, because we have all these psalms of reflection to look at that he wrote, is he would take the time in the midst of uncertainty when he was tempted by present circumstances to think, God's not faithful, God's not present, God's not good, he's got ill intentions towards me, he doesn't care about me. I believe David, in the midst of those thoughts that every single one of us have thought, remembered what God had done in the past. He remembered that God had, when he was a soldier, or excuse me, when he wasn't even in the army of God, he was showing up with some cheese to feed his brothers, that God positioned him to take down a giant. God, he remembered that God was faithful to defend him from the lion and the bear. He remembered that God forgave him and overcame the adultery and overcame the affair and overcame all of the brokenness in his life. And as he remembered, not his perfect track record, but God's faithfulness in spite of his faithlessness, he began to be encouraged in the present. You see, faith is strengthened when we remember what God has done. Three years ago, there was something in your life that you were sure you were not going to overcome, and you were questioning the faithfulness and the goodness of God, and look at you. You're still here. And it's not because you were a warrior. It's not because like you pulled your boots on and you were strong. It's because he was faithful and he's still risen. And he didn't climb back into the tomb whenever you were climbing into it and pronouncing death over yourself. You're still here. You know why you're here? The faithfulness of God. 
Most of us, if God doesn't miraculously show up, we assume he's not present. When you read your Bible, there's really two ways that we see God move. There's the, I'll use it as this illustration. There's the hand of miracles, and there's the hand of providence. Everybody loves the hand of miracles. Amen? Like right now, some of you are like, could you just part the waters? Could you just rain down Chick-fil-A? Like manna? Could you, could you, you know, like on a Sunday? Praise God. Okay, well, you know, could you, could, could you just show up visibly? Anybody there? Right? But you need to understand that God doesn't always miraculously move. In fact, some of the most powerful things that you can learn come from the providence of God. Where you have to stay close to God because if you linger away from Him, you'll be ruined. Because if you don't have Him, you're not going to be able to sustain and endure in that season. You see, providence is what we see in the book of Ruth. God never is mentioned by name in the book of Ruth. Do you know that? It's in our Bible. We know he's there, we infer it, but Ruth and Naomi, they make the journey by themselves back to the land of Naomi after her sons and her uh, husband dies. They do it by themselves. You traveled in groups, you didn't travel with just one or two people, you traveled together. Jesus' whole family went in an entourage from Nazareth when they left him at 12 at the temple. When Joseph and Mary went to be counted in the census, they likely went with an entire entourage of people who were from that area who would have gone back. You don't travel alone back in the day, but providentially, God was taking care of them. Providentially, he had already prepared a field in the place of a man named Boaz, who was a godly man. Boaz means strong. They had been linked to a weak chain. They needed to be linked to a strong chain, so God brought Boaz into the story providentially. Now, here's the deal with providence. You don't ever know God is providentially moving in your life in the present. You only know he's providentially moving when you look back and you go, Shazam! Wow. Can you relate? That's providence. It's that moment where you're going, I don't know how we're going to get through it. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to come from or, or what's going to. And in that moment, in that moment that you don't think you can get through, you somehow get there, days and become weeks and weeks become months and months become years. And then you look back and you go, he was there the whole time. I thought he had forsaken me, but, but he, he was carrying me. I, I thought he had abandoned me, but he was near to me. Can you relate? So, so what do we do whenever we're in a season of struggle? Well, we remember what God has done. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as this. We remember what God has done. It strengthens our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded, excuse me, go back to uh, 11, chapter 11. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So it's confidence it's confidence. I haven't seen God work in this situation yet, but I am confident that there's reason for hope that he's not done with it. I don't know what the outcome's going to be on the other side of this, but I'm not mourning as someone who is overcome by the grief of this world. I am hoping because there's a God back when I wasn't here in a different circumstance with different details who was faithful in my life, who overcame in ways that I didn't dream up, who provided for me in a way that I didn't imagine provision was going to come. And since he did it then, I'm not going to stand faithless now, even though I can't sense his presence, even though I don't know how this is going to work. I'm going to stand in hope. And the Bible says that's how you please God. Not having it figured out, not knowing all the answers, 
It's standing in the space where if God doesn't show up, you will be ruined. But when he does, he'll look holy. I'm going to say that one again. It's living in the space. This is the Christian life where if God doesn't show up, you will look foolish. Because you had hope and everybody else was, you know, in survival mode. But when he shows up, he looks holy through your life because you held on to hope in the face of uncertainty. Now here's what's amazing about this. Hebrews 11.1 gives us a definition of faith and then it rattles off. All of these people who by faith saw God do incredible things. And what we should read about that is not that these are great people, but that there's a great God that worked through broken people. A lot of us, we, we come away with Bible lessons that are like, be like Boaz, be like King David. No, they're broken. Be like Jesus. How do you do that? You need a good shepherd. You need a good shepherd. That, that's the takeaway. Be like Jesus. Jesus worked providentially through all these people's lives that are listening to Hebrews 11. And it gets us to Hebrews chapter 12. And this is where I want to get into the first verse. We're only going to do the first verse today because some of you are like, what's happening? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's what I think it means. We remember what God has done which invigorates us with faith in the presence of what he's yet to do, okay? But then there's going to be seasons in your life where you remember what God has done, but you're still afraid. You remember what God has done, but you're overcome in fear and worry and anxiety. You can't sleep at night. And in that moment, God gave us a community, a community that came before us and a community that stands beside us. And what he's done in Hebrews 11 and 12 is he's reminded us there are a group of people that came before you that were not any different than you. They needed Jesus to lay his life down for them. They needed the Holy Spirit to fill them, to overcome. They needed exactly what you need. They were not superheroes. They were not more spiritual than you. They were not greater people ethically than you. Lord, have mercy. If you're reading the Bible thinking they're just better than me, then you're not reading it. How many of y'all kill someone? Don't, don't raise your hand. You know what I'm saying? So the takeaway, what, what comes up in this is sometimes when you're remembering, but you're still afraid, God will bring a community to remind you to look back at the, at the scriptures and say, hey, he worked through a broken man like David, he can work through you. I mean, name the circumstance you've gone through that someone in the Bible didn't go through and didn't experience God's faithfulness in. You've experienced the weight and impact of sin in your life, yet God still shows up faithfully to lead you. And so sometimes, here's the point, sometimes, whether it's from people around you or people that have come before you, you've got to borrow faith. You've got to borrow faith. Meaning their, their witness, their example, their testimony invigorates me, not to exclusion. That, that's what the devil loves to do with other people's stories. You read the Bible and you're like, well, I'm not like them. God won't do that for me. You don't earn God's favor. You don't earn God's providence. You don't earn God's working in a miracle in your life. You don't earn that. It's not your sweat equity. God is good, faithful, just, and true. And he moves and works throughout time and history. And so sometimes you've got to borrow faith, not to be discouraged of, well, he did that for them, but not for me, but so that you're reminded this is who God is. He is merciful. He is the God of the second chance. He is the God that restores. 
And what I think we should do over this first verse is just take a second and allow David to give us a little bit of faith and a little bit of perspective about the character of God and his shepherding over his life. Amen? So let me give you a few quick things out of verse 1. You ready? The first thing we see is the Lord. Two words in and we can preach. You ready? The Lord. The Lord. That is a strong, big term that King David uses in this song. The Lord. Uh, The word Lord is the most frequented term used to describe Jesus in the New Testament. And it's a term that we often see compounded beside each other. So we'll see it in the New Testament as Lord of Lords. I was hoping we would get some interaction out of that. Lord of Lords. We also see in other places of Scripture where the same tactics used. Like Jesus would say, truly, truly. That, that means pay attention. For real, for real. I mean this. Okay? And so when we see Lord of Lords, it's saying, look, some people are walking around with the title Lord. But this Lord isn't like that Lord. He's the Lord of the Lord. In the Old Testament, we see the word king of kings. It's to say there's a lot of people running around talking about being king. LeBron talks about being king of basketball. It's Michael Jordan, but that's for another time. Uh, Michael Jackson's the king of pop. There's a lot of people that have the title king. you got King George and all the other kings that have reigned as monarchs on this earth. But we don't bend our knee to that king. We bend our knee to the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. So this word is used to make sure that in the midst of your struggle, you remember that there is a magnificent and magnanimous and powerful God that you're dealing with. You've got to remember who you're dealing with. For some of you, your problems are big because your view of God got small. So you're overwhelmed with anxiety and fear because you don't actually believe God's got this. You don't actually believe that he's sufficient for you. And so you're sitting in anxiety and worry. And look, I've struggled with this with you. And I need this reminder. He's still Lord. He's still reigning over the whole thing. It's still going to culminate in something that's a story for his glory. Here's what I want to ask you. When is the last time you stopped in your chaos to remember how powerful and able God is? I give a praise break for that for a minute, right? Like, when's the last time you just paused and said, look, I don't, I am overwhelmed. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I never thought I would be here. I never wanted to be here. I don't know what the future looks like, but if you're asking me, it's not, not positive. It's not good. And in the midst of all of that, that hurried, can't sleep, my brain's going 100 miles a minute thought. In the midst of it, you just stopped and remembered, he's still Lord. He's still God. He's still good. He's still reigning, and in light of eternity, all of this pain and all of this suffering will echo as a praise to his glory. I mean, when's the last time you were encouraged and strengthened by the fact that he is God Almighty? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18 says this, He, the Lord, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or authorities. So before the beginning, he was the beginning. And before there was an authority, he was the authority. And any authority that's been given came from him, and it's, over, under, uh, and it's under his oversight, and it's all under his authority. So all things were created through him, and it's, you will never live a, 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 an overcoming great life until you realize this last part of verse 16. It's not about you. It's not about you getting your blessing. It's not about you getting your answer. You were created for him. There's nothing that is on this earth, visible or invisible, that God doesn't rightly look at and say, mine. 
mine. Belong to me. And, and God gives you in his goodness the ability to live whatever kind of life you want to live, but it will not give you the right to, to run away from his judgment. At the end of your life, you will stand before him and he will profess as authority over you, mine. Either in his presence or apart from it. He's the authority of authorities. It's all for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. That's where I get the children's song. He got the whole world. In his hands, he got the whole wide world. In his hands. All right, anyway, I'm about to loot it. I need to loot it. All right. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be first, preeminent, that he might be before all things. So here's what I want you to see. He is Lord is a statement that says he is the beginning of all beginnings that he's the sustainer of all the living, that he's the judge over all creation. He's the head of the church, no matter how functional or dysfunctional it may be. He's the defeater of death. He is the one who is reigning, sovereign, ruling as king, and returning as Lord over all of creation. You see, there's a lot that I could say about the ability and the power of Christ. There's a lot that the scriptures say about the ability and the power of Christ, but Lord is the word that the Bible uses to sum it up. He's Lord. And sometimes you've got to remember, he's still Lord. But there's something marvelous that comes on the hills of this statement in verse 1. He is Lord. The Lord is, and here's the, the profound part, my shepherd. Now, you may not have gotten on the first read-through, but let me make sure you get this because this will change your life. His intentions as the all-powerful one, as the one that created the beginning and will bring forth the ending of time, his intentions is that he would be intimately acquainted with you and I as shepherd. Huh. That's why we sing the hymn. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own power. He leadeth me, his faithful follower I would be. For by his hand he leadeth me. What? God Almighty is like, yeah, watch what I'm going to do with Donna. Yep, had that one planned for her. She doesn't even know. She wasn't even expecting this is how I was going to bring that to a resolution, but she's going to be blown away when she gets it and looks in the rearview mirror. He's intimately acquainted. He knows the number of hairs on your head. <laughs> Psalm 139 says that he knit you together in your mother's womb. The Bible teaches us that he has numbered your steps. You think that you've been running in a path of rebellion to get away from God, and God's at the end of the road going, you ready? You ready? Now, a lot of us know famous people, right? Any of y'all know a famous person? Know of? Follow them on Twitter? <laughs> Instagram, whatever the cool kids do? TikToks? Tic Tacs? Whatever. All right. But how many of them are actually intimately acquainted with you? How many of them care about you? But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, the Lord of lords and the King of kings gave his life for you, for me. I mean, this is what blows commentaries away that write about this. And one commentary says this, how astonishing it is to find the words Lord and shepherd in such proximity. David is asserting that the sovereign ruler of the universe has taken up the menial task of shepherding him, us, let me just make sure you get this. God 
cares. I know you're tempted to think that it's too, you're too little, that the problem's too minute in comparison to the rest of the world's problems. He cares. He cares. He loves you. He wants to lead you through and in this season of your life. He wants to provide for you what you lack in the beginning of the journey whenever you get to the midpoint of it and you're struggling to figure out how you're going to get through. He cares. He loves you. I know it may make you uncomfortable because he's so powerful and so good. And a lot of people have taught you that there's a God that's powerful and able, but he's distant and probably won't show up unless you do a lot of works to earn it. But I want you to know that he's head over heels in love with you. And and he, he, he knows exactly where you're at. And he's not worried about the destination that you want to be at in the future. He's just enjoying the journey. He can give you peace today. He can provide for you what you lack today. He's still sufficient and able. He's powerful. I know that your problems may be loud and his voice may be soft, but he is the God who works in spite of the noise of this world to bring beauty out of the ashes, to bring resurrection out of death. Which is why King David ends verse 1 with saying, He's Lord, He's magnificent, He's powerful, but He's my shepherd, I shall not want. The Bible calls that word of Him being our provider, that He's Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. Many of you have worked your whole life to not need Him to provide for you. And recently you found yourself in circumstances where you need someone to help you out. And I get not wanting to take handouts from people, but you were created to need handouts from God on the daily. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. And here's my favorite word, daily. You've got to get over your self-sufficiency daily. You've got to get over this idea that you don't need him today because it's not as deep of a valley as you were in last year. Daily. Daily, you've got to begin it by making what I would call a declaration of dependence. As Americans, we love the declaration of independence, but as believers, we better learn the declaration of dependence that declares every single day, I need you. More than water, more than a job, more than a relationship, more than a new season, more more than moments of refreshment, more than a vacation, I need you. You, and that is sweet music to the good shepherd's ears because he knows we need him. And at the cry of that, he, in his providence, moves and leads a surrendered people who trust in him. Are you tracking with me? He's the good shepherd. You want to know how to overcome a season of bitterness? You're going to need a good shepherd for that. You want to know how to make sure that you're going to be in heaven for eternity? You're going to need a good shepherd for that. You want to know how to overcome the chains of your addiction? You're going to need a good shepherd for that. You want to know how to forgive the people who have done the unforgivable in your life? You're going to need a good shepherd for that. And the good news this morning is that the good shepherd is offering his leadership to whosoever would believe in him. Man, what good news for people like us. Amen? We're going to have some ministry leaders come forward to pray. And uh, I know it may be awkward for a minute uh, in this. I know we haven't done this recently, but week in and week out, we're not going to be hearers of the word without getting the opportunity to, with community, apply that. And so we're going to come into a time of prayer and worship and praise. And I want to invite you, whether you're online or in person, to just 
humble yourselves before God. For some of you, it would be declaring, God, I can't see you. I never thought I'd be here. I'm ashamed. I'm guilt-ridden. I'm filled with worry. But God, if the Bible's still true, that you still love and pursue broken people like us, that you're still the father that waits on the prodigal to go, I need help, then I'm saying, here I am, help me. Man, that would be music to his ears this morning from some of you. For some of you, it may be going, God, I've looked at the problems to the point that it's so big that I've lost sight of how great you are. You're Lord, you're King, you're reigning, you're, you're in control, and I've been living like you're out of control of this or it's not in your hands and I just want to come back and remind myself and ask you to help me to remember that you got this and I can trust you and I can worship you and I in this present uncertainty can hope in a future that I've yet to see so I invite you to the altar yeah let's do business with God I invite you to the altar to repent to declare dependency to be prayed for You move as God leads. Ministry leaders, you come forward. Let's stand to our feet and let's allow God to work as we respond. In Jesus' name.